You know, in the next 24 hours, we're going to have a lot of great moments, some wonderful moments, hopefully mostly wonderful moments. Moments spent around delicious food, moments spent with people that we love, moments giving and receiving gifts that have meaning in our lives, and uh, so wonderful moments. Also, maybe some challenging moments. The holidays often come with mixed emotions, uh, things that we remember, people that we miss. So there could be some challenging moments in front of us, too. Also, some tricky moments. And I think one of the trickiest moments every Christmas is when you're opening presents in front of people who gave you the present, and they're expecting to see a very excited response on your face as you open their present. And maybe you're not as excited as they thought you might be. Anyone ever been there? Um, I have, uh, my wife and I have three uh, girls, 14, 11, and 8, and when the kids were more little than they are now, one of our most nervous moments of every Christmas was watching them open gifts from other people and just hoping that they would not embarrass us with their reactions to the gifts that they were receiving. And I think adults, too. Sometimes, anyone here have trouble ever with your face? You, you have a hard time hiding uh, how you actually feel about what you've been given? I actually wanted to do you a big favor tonight and give you a second to practice this, okay? So we're going we're gonna to practice this. If you would humor me, put your hands out in front of you like you've got a gift in your hand. You just unwrapped it. You're looking at it. You're, you know immediately that you really don't want it. In fact, mostly you're looking for a gift receipt. Is a gift receipt uh, taped to the back of this thing. So you're looking down on it, okay? Everybody's looking down at their gift. I'm going to count to three, and at the count of three, I want you to look up, and, 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 sh- and in your head, you're thinking, I don't want it, but also you're thinking, this person uh, thought a lot about me, and they thought of me, and so you're, you're, you're mustering up a look of gratitude and excitement, no matter how you feel, all right? So everybody look down at this gift that you don't want. At the count of three, you're going to look up, and you're going to show me your gratitude. This is a good practice for us, ready? One two, three. Oh, that's nice. That's kind of how I wish you looked when I preached the whole time. (laughs) The text that Jennifer read from us was from Matthew chapter two, and it's the story of the Magi. It's a story that actually happened one to two years after Jesus was born. I know there's a song that we sing at Christmas time, We Three Kings, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but We don't actually know how many people were in this traveling group, probably more than three. And we do know that these men were not kings. (laughs) They were high-ranking officials with power and influence. Probably they were advisors to the king, educated priests who specialized in astrology, which meant they studied the stars and they tried to interpret the stars. We know they're from the east, probably from Persia or Babylon. And in this story, what we're most reminded of is the gifts. The gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But really, this story is not about the gifts that the wise men brought. It's about the gift that God sent. It's about the gift of Jesus. And what I want us to do together tonight is to notice in this story that there are three different ways that people respond to the gift of Jesus. Three very different, distinct ways that people respond. And I actually think that 2,000 years later, as we're sitting here tonight... These are the same three ways that people respond to the gift of Jesus. So let's finish the story. Verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may to come and worship him. Now, we know later that Herod did not want to worship this child king. He wanted to end his life. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child, Jesus, was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the first response that we see in this story to the gift of Jesus is a response of animosity. The Magi came to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the capital. Jerusalem was the important city, and Jerusalem was where King Herod was. And kings are supposed to be born to kings, and kings are supposed to be born in palaces. But no son had been born to King Herod. So when he hears about this child king and he knows this child is not his own, he is troubled. And he sees this prophecy or this child as a threat. Now, there's actually historical accounts that we can read about this man named Herod. He was a real man who reigned at this time. And from history, we know that Herod was talented and he was cunning, but he also was paranoid. And in his paranoia, he was often violent. In fact, in his paranoia, he was so violent that he, according to history, ordered the execution of several of his family members who he perceived to be threats to his rule as king, including some of his sons and his favorite wife. His favorite wife. (laughs) Imagine what it was like to be his least favorite wife. So Herod hears of this king of the Jews, this baby, and he sees a threat, a threat. Now, when you and I look at a little baby Jesus in the nativity scene, we don't see a threat, you know? Babies are not threats to, I mean, they're a threat to our sleep at night, right? They're, they're, they're a threat that way, but, but babies are not a threat, but Herod sees him as a threat. And I'm here to say tonight that Jesus actually is a threat. He's a threat. Let me explain. He's a threat to my desire to rule my own life. He's a threat to my desire to define my own truth, because Jesus said, I am truth. He's a threat to my propensity to not bow my knee to anyone because Jesus came to be king. He's a threat to my comfort because it's costly to follow Jesus. He's a threat to my preferences because he has a will for my life. He's a threat to the values of this world because he came to bring and inaugurate the, uh, the, the right side up kingdom of God. And he's a threat to anyone or anything that we intend to put on the throne of our hearts. Each of the four gospel writers, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the four authors wanted to highlight a different aspect of who Jesus was. And for Matthew, he wanted to highlight that Jesus came as king. And out of all the ways that you can see Jesus and consider Jesus, I think king is the most confrontational, uh, challenging way to see Jesus. Well, think about it. Seeing Jesus as a good teacher, great, helpful. Jesus as a miracle worker, incredible, remarkable. Jesus as a moral, ethical example, noble. Jesus as a person who cared for those in the margins of society, inspiring. Jesus as a suffering servant, compelling. Jesus as someone who died on our behalf, moving. Jesus as our savior, amazing. But Jesus as king, threatening. And Herod gets it right. He sees Jesus as king. And he responds with animosity. The second response we see in this story is apathy. So Herod, what he does is actually quite interesting. 
he calls together the chief priests and the scribes. And these two groups of men actually comprised a larger group known as the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish religious leadership council. And Herod had a very contentious relationship with the Sanhedrin. So if he's gathering them together, you know that he's desperate. And he inquires of them this question, where was the Christ child to be born? He wants to know where is this threat located because he wants to eliminate this threat. And actually, this verb inquired, it's in the Greek, it's in the Greek, and it's in a verb tense known as the imperfect verb tense, which means that he kept asking over and over and over. The scribes were conservative teachers, they were known as Pharisees, and the chief priests were Sadducees who had collaborated with their oppressors, Rome, to try and get more power. These were two political parties, two religious groups that agreed on nothing at all. We, of course, don't know what that's like. But Herod consults these two groups, brings them together, and in doing so, it's brilliant because Herod realizes if these two groups who agree about nothing agree about this, then I'll know that their answer is true, and they agree. They quote the prophet Micah, and they say, this child is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, Bethlehem was about five miles away from Jerusalem. And what I want us to notice here is the apathy of the priests and the scribes. They got the answer right, but they didn't move one inch closer to go look into this themselves. There's no evidence from Matthew's account that the scribes or the priests who only faced a five-mile journey to go see if this prophecy was true, that none of them traveled. Their response was one of total apathy. And if I'm being honest with you, I think this is still the most common response today to Jesus. Not animosity. You're not going to come across a lot of people who are angry at Jesus, maybe angry at the church, but not angry at Jesus. You're not going to come across a lot of people who have animosity in their hearts towards Jesus. They're probably pretty okay with him, but they're apathetic to him. They're unwilling to change in any meaningful way in response to the gift of Jesus. They're unwilling to give up anything for Jesus, to leave anything behind to follow Jesus, and to pay any cost to serve Jesus. Here's what this might sound like, this level of apathy. It might sound like this. I'll get serious about my faith later in life, but for now, I'm just going to uh, do things my way. Or, I like Jesus, I'm okay with Jesus, but I, don't, I mean, we don't, let's not get crazy. I don't have to actually read what he said and do what he said and be around people who serve him. Or it might sound like this, I'll engage with my faith and with a church if it helps me, when it helps me, when it fits my schedule, when I got nothing else to do. It's apathy. Christmas Eve is actually my favorite night of the year. I like Christmas Eve more than Christmas Day. Is that okay to say? And what I love about Christmas Eve is we have a tradition in our family. We would open our gifts on Christmas Eve. So, of course, I like Christmas Eve more. But also what I love is that after this service ends, we'll go home, we'll change, we'll pack up, we'll go to my mom's house, and we will eat. And we will eat lots of appetizers. So I'm an appetizer guy. So instead of ordering one meal, when I go to a restaurant, I want to order all the small plates because I want to try as much as I can. And so I'm making Reuben sandwiches tonight. We got all sorts of things coming. Someone's bringing a veggie tray. I don't know why. Someone will eat it, I guess. But my mom, who is Korean, will have Korean food there. Now, Korean food is my jam. I love Korean food. And uh, one of the things I learned growing up around my mom and her Korean and friends is that when you go when you go to a gathering of Koreans and you eat, um, the other Korean moms keep feeding you. 
They, 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 they just keep putting food on your plate. They eat more, eat more. And I had a friend, or I have a friend named Jonathan Valletta. He's Italian. I would go to his house a lot growing up, and I learned that Italian moms are the same as Korean moms. When you're sitting at a table of a Korean mom or Italian mom, you don't get to decide when you've had enough. And look at me. I've been very obedient. I, I, whatever they tell me to do, I do. Most of us would like to decide when we've had enough of Jesus. What we really want to control is not how, uh, not how much Jesus we have, but how much of us Jesus has. And it can lead to apathy. And in some ways, hear me, apathy is more dangerous than animosity. Because apathy is like you've been inoculated to Jesus. You've had just enough of him to ensure that you will never get all of him or maybe it's better to be said this way, that he will never have all of you. And what's ironic in this story is that Herod, this Gentile king, sees Jesus more clearly than the Jewish religious leaders. He sees him for who he really is. But if you keep reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and that's what we're going to do as a church for the next few months, we're going to teach through Matthew on Sundays. You're going to learn that the chief priests and the scribes, once Jesus is 30 years old and doing his public ministry, they're not apathetic about him anymore. (laughs) They go one of two ways. They either have animosity in their hearts towards him, which leads all the way to the cross, or there's some who actually have a different response, and it's the third response that we see in this story tonight. It's the response of adoration, worship. Matthew tells this story of Gentile astrologers And he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. It's kind of strange. But the reason why Matthew includes this story, I think, is because he wants you and I, the reader, to know that God will do anything to reach people. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their pedigree is. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter if they deserve it. None of us deserve it. That God will use everything and anything to draw people to himself. What did God use to get the Magi all the way from where they lived in Persia or Babylon to the palace in Jerusalem? It's pretty remarkable if you understand the history. About 586 years before this event, the Jewish people were dragged into exile by the Babylonians. They were conquered, defeated, and dragged to Babylon. And in Babylon, the Jewish people almost lost their identity, their religion, their sense of self. And while they're in Babylon, another powerful nation came through and conquered Babylon named Persia. And so they eventually ended up under the rule and oppression of Persia. And because that happened 586 years before this story, these magi knew this prophecy. They would not have known this prophecy if it wasn't for the fact that the Jewish people in 586 B.C. were dragged into exile. That means that nearly 600 years before this story, God was already working on the behalf of this Magi to get them to Jesus. And here's what I know. I don't know if it was 600 years ago. I don't know if it was 100 years. I don't know, but God is working on your behalf to get you to understand who Jesus is. Then God uses this supernatural mean, this star. Now, up until a point, it could have just been maybe a comet or a supernova. But when you get into the story and you realize that when they got to Jerusalem, the star, according to the text, goes before them and leads them to Bethlehem and then rests over the place where the child was. We don't know if it rested over the actual house or just over the region. But that movement suggests that this is not a natural phenomenon, but it's supernatural. So here you have a God who works in history 600 years before this story and literally moves the heavens 
so that the Magi can come and bow before his son Jesus. And if he did that for them, I can guarantee you he's working for you. God uses anything and everything to draw people to himself. I'm gonna ask the band to join me. We're gonna finish in just a moment with a song. And so the story ends with the Magi worshiping Jesus. And in the spirit of worship, they offer Jesus their gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we notice this. Herod saw a king and he wanted to kill him. The Magi saw a king and they wanted to worship him. And that actually becomes the pattern for the rest of Jesus' life. Those who saw Jesus clearly and understood his claims, they always went one of two directions. They either wanted to destroy him and take everything from him, including his life, or they wanted to worship him and give everything to him, including their lives. And so the Magi give these gifts, they worship Jesus, and they get up and they go. It's interesting because in this culture, it would have been expected for them to get a gift back in return, a reciprocal gift, a birthday party goodie bag. (laughs) They're supposed to leave with something, but they seem to leave with nothing. However, we know that that's not the case because what did King Jesus come to give us? Now, as I finish, listen to this. Earlier I said that Matthew wanted his readers to see Jesus as king. And you know what Matthew does here right in the beginning of his gospel, in these first two chapters? He holds up in front of us this juxtaposition, this comparison, and this contrast between two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And you can't miss the difference between the two. King Herod is power hungry. He's a glory grabber. He's murderous. He will destroy people's lives or anything that gets in his way because he lives for power and he'll stand on the shoulders of the people that he's supposed to lead to get his. And then you have King Jesus who leaves his throne in heaven to come to earth, to live amongst us, not to gain power, but to give power away, not to be the powerful, mighty ruler who defeated the enemies of the Jewish people, but to die on the cross at the hands of the Romans. This was the king that we didn't expect. This is a king that we don't deserve, but this is the king that we desperately need. This is the king, Jesus. And in the passage from Micah that the chief priests and the scribes quoted, they said that there will be a ruler who will shepherd his people. Those are two very different jobs, being a king and being a shepherd. A king is powerful, a shepherd is weak. A king lives his life in the spotlight, a shepherd lives their life in obscurity. A king is wealthy, a shepherd lives in poverty. A king rules his people from a distance, a shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. And many years before this story, there was another prophet named Ezekiel. And through Ezekiel, God said to Israel, someday I'm going to shepherd you myself. I'm going to come down and I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to find you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And this is what Jesus came to do. And when we see Jesus, this baby in a manger, he's the king that we adore. He's the king that we need. He's the king that can reign and rule over our hearts in such a way that you and I will gladly come before him and give our gifts, the gift of our life the gift of our hearts, the gift of everything. This is the king we adore. This is Jesus. Let's pray together.